In 2016, the Bar of Ireland held a series of lectures celebrating the role of barristers and the courts at key junctures in the history of our state. The lectures included an examination of pivotal trials and some important legal personalities that figured in Ireland's struggle for independence. Under the guidance of the then Bar Council Chair, now Mr Justice David Barneval of the High Court, a range of legal luminaries presented at Green Street Courthouse near Smithfield Market here in Dublin 7. Today, we are delighted to bring these informative and engaging lectures to you in a different format and for a wider audience. In this episode, the trial of Harry Gleeson, delivered by Mr Shane Murphy, Senior Counsel, David Barnival introduces. I want to welcome you all here to the Green Street Court Lecture Series. This week's lecture is being given by Shane Murphy, and I'll just mention the title of it in a moment. I, I want, first of all, I want to welcome Hilary and Shane's parents, Jerry and Joan, here sitting in the, the jury box. Uh, I'm sure uh, that they are, as, as we all are, in for a, a treat this evening. Um, this evening's lecture is on a famous or very important trial that took place here in Green Street Court in 1941, properly known as the People Attorney General and Henry uh, Gleeson has been uh, described in the title of the talk as the trial of Harry Gleeson, a, a well-known case. Um, I want to thank uh, Shane, as I've done, I think, on each of these uh, lectures uh, for conceiving of this lecture series and for coming up with really such a wonderful range of lectures on such uh, uh, an extremely interesting, interesting range of topics, all with a rough and general theme of famous Irish trials or famous Irish barristers. So uh, please uh, welcome Shane this evening. Thank you. Uh, Chairman of the Bar Council, colleagues and friends, it's a real honour for me to speak here this evening in relation to the case of the trial of Henry, otherwise known as Harry Gleeson, a case which resonates from events which really took place essentially in 1940, but the trial itself took place in 1941 in this courtroom. And it's an unusual trial with some very unusual features, but as we progress through the story of the trial, I think you will see that it's one which has lessons which are relevant today and into the future for future trials as well. In 1940, the world was a very different place. Europe was very different to the way it is today. Britain stood alone. <laughs> Most of Europe was under German domination with the exception of Norway and Switzerland. But apart from that, Life in rural Ireland during the emergency was frugal, simple, spartan, but relatively peaceful. At the same time, there were difficulties experienced by the forces of law and order at the time. We'll be familiar with the upsurge of IRA activity in the early 1940s. The need to deal with that activity was addressed by the government with great severity at the time. But the focus of this lecture goes to County Tipperary, to a small location near New Inn in County Tipperary called Marl Hill. And in 1940, Henry, otherwise known as Harry Gleeson, lived there. And he lived with his uncle, John Caesar, and his wife, Bridget. His uncle and his wife had effectively welcomed Harry into the home, and he had worked as a farm manager for them for nearly 16 years. He was a person with no previous convictions. He was a lively, sportive, uh, active person within the local community, a person of good standing. Mary Mal McCarthy was the same age as him. She was age 38. And she lived in very simple conditions in a two-roomed cottage surrounded on three sides by the Caesars farms. She was a very unusual woman for the times in which she lived. 
She was the mother of seven children, and she was unmarried. As we'll see later on, that became a central feature of the Garden investigation into the circumstances surrounding her death. One of her children, Peggy, the last, had died in May of 1940, a few days after being born. But the other six children lived with their mother in very poor conditions. And on the 21st of November 1940, which is a Thursday, Harry Gleason made contact with the Garda in New Inn. He came to them and said that he had been walking through his uncle's lands. He had come to a ditch. He had looked up over the ditch and had seen the body of a woman who appeared to be lifeless in the field. And there was a small black dog beside the body. He turned and went back to the Caesar's house, told him about his discovery, and then walked to New Inn to tell the Garda about his discovery. And the Garda then drove him back to the location. And when they got there and climbed over the fence, they found the body of Mal McCarthy, who they recognized almost immediately. And her body had been laid in a very particular way, which I'll describe in a moment. But one of the particularly savage features of the killing was that her face had been blown away. And the Garda examined the body. And in the course of a subsequent Garda report, the Garda said the body was lying on its back almost parallel with the fence, the right side being nearest the fence. The head was facing south and was about one foot from the base of the fence. The body was fully clothed, even to a cap, and the clothes were in no way disarranged. The right foot was crossed over the left foot. The legs were fully extended. The right hand and the arm were bent backwards in a semicircular position around the head. The left arm was extended by the left side. The face was blown away and there was unmistakable signs of gunshot wounds on the neck at the left side. There was a cartridge wad line in the open wounds and a second wad about six inches to the left. But the superintendent, Superintendent O'Mahony, who will play a very big role in the story of this case, noted in his own words, the covered portion of the body which I touched were fairly warm. He also noted in the course of his report, quote, the remarkable tidiness and the arrangement of the clothing and by its temperature. The outer clothes on top of the body were completely dry except for a slight dampness on the left stocking, where it was in contact with the ground, and on both stockings where they touched each other at the crossing of the legs. This also struck me as the early part of the previous night had been very wet. So we have a situation where the body is discovered in those circumstances, and those points of initial observation are noted, and noted very clearly. The next day, Dr. McGrath, the state pathologist, arrived to examine the body. He conducted a post-mortem. And a Dr. O'Connor had come the previous day and had taken a body measurement of the body, which was at 96 degrees Fahrenheit. Again, a point of some importance, as we'll see later on. The Gardaí sought to try and identify suspects. Because of the unusual nature of Mary McCarthy's life, they identified what they believed to be a range of individuals who had concerns about her. And I'll just go through those very briefly. But also, from an early stage, it's clear the Gardaí suspected Harry Gleason for two reasons. First, as far as they were concerned, he had not purported to identify the dead body as that of Mal McCarthy, who was a neighbor of his. Second, having talked to the children of the deceased woman, some of the children said to the Garthi that their mother had told them that Harry Gleason had been the father of the last child, Peggy. Now, this had never been said in the community before. The fathers of the other children were all known by repute in the locality, but no one had ever mentioned this particular connection with Harry Gleason, And Mary McCarthy, who was age 19, made a statement to the Garda when she said, 
I know my mother had been keeping company with Harry Gleason for a number of years. I can't say when they became friendly. My mother gave birth to a baby girl. The girl was christened in New Inn. They called it Peggy. The baby died about a fortnight afterwards born. My mother told me that Harry Gleason was the father of the baby, but he denied being the father. And she also mentioned that Gleason did not like having been blamed for the child. So these points of interest alerted the Gardaí rapidly to try and identify Harry Gleason's movements, his circumstances, his backgrounds, his associations. But also, as we've discovered in the last two years, from the Garda file, which had previously lain in storage and had not been examined for a very long time, the Gardaí also regarded Mary McCarthy as somebody who had a number of other persons who would have been very concerned about her. They identified the points of contact with Harry Gleason. They identified issues that were connected to his relationship with the McCarthy family. But the furthest the evidence ever went was that there were some sightings by the children of Mary McCarthy talking to Harry Gleason, and there was some suggestion that he may have given potatoes to this family who lived in very simple and frugal circumstances. And we know that eventually, within the first week of the investigation, the Guardi formed a theory. And the theory was, Harry Gleason must have had sexual relations with Mary McCarthy. Second, he'd given her potatoes and perhaps other things, and this must have been to try and persuade her not to identify him as being the father of her youngest child. Third, they surmised that Harry Gleason must have been afraid that his uncle would find out about this particular friendship and relationship, and this might have led him to exclude Harry Gleason from any hope of succession to the farm. And in those circumstances, the speed of the investigation and its thoroughness were all directed towards Harry Gleason. And the Guardian at the same time had information, again, which has come to light more in the last two years, which has tended to show that the Guardian also recognised that there were a significant number of people who were her enemies. In the course of one of the statements, the superintendent said, Mary McCarthy was, in his words, somewhat gamish and simple. She always had the idea that the father of one of her children would marry her. She never went out with more than one person at a time. But one by one, the fathers of her children became married themselves, and they lived in the area. And the Guardian went on to note, and this is an interesting phrase from it, the presence of Mom McCarthy was an annoyance to many in the parish of New Inn. Although her children were baptised and registered under the name McCarthy, she told them as they grew up the names of their true fathers by different men. But for some reason, she kept the name of the last child secret and never said it to anyone else. It was no wonder, therefore, that the men whose names Mal had mentioned and their relatives would be anxious to have the mother, at least, if possible, the whole family out of the way. And then they went on to say, the young McCarthys were beginning to grow up. They were showing a resemblance to their half-sisters and brothers who happened to be born in wedlock. The suspect for these crimes was A, the father of B, and they went on to look at these different issues. But eerily, the Guardi realised that these young children were now growing up in a community where they began to resemble more and more their fathers, and this was a source of distress to the settled members of the community. The Garda file also showed that in 1926 there had been an attempt to firebomb the McCarthy house and the next house, so there would be no alternative for them to move into. That was arrested just in time. It also demonstrated that one of the fathers of the children had attempted to sexually assault another child in the family, had been interrupted by Mary McCarthy, who'd made a complaint, and as a result, that man was prosecuted and went to prison for 12 months. And he'd just been released in 1938. So there were no shortages of, shortage of people within the area who were enemies. And the Guardian said this in their report. They said, the range of Miles' enemies is therefore very wide. 
But try as one might place suspicion elsewhere, it comes back to the father of the last child, whose name Mal concealed to all outsiders, provided, of course, the man has sufficient reason to commit a foul murder to enforce silence. Harry Gleeson is such a man. The Gardaí consider that they delimited all of the other fathers as suspects because of their movements, though curiously, they don't seem to have spent much time examining the other possibility, that this was some form of a punishment shooting. In particular, the shooting of the face is very much akin to mafia-type punishment shootings, where in addition to inflicting death on the victim, a message has been sent to somebody else by the defacing of a deceased body. And in those circumstances, it's important for us to recognize that this was a situation where Mary McCarthy was a good mother. We know this because there were not just one, but two attempts to take her children and transfer them into industrial schools. These were applications to the district court in the early 19, late 1930s and early 1940s. And on both occasions, the lo local district judge refused to do so because he was satisfied that she was a loving mother, that she did her best to look after the children, and in those circumstances, they remained as a very poor, but happily, family unit within the area itself. In effect, the Gardaí identified after five or six days, and after having taken several statements from Harry Gleeson, they believed that he was the person responsible, and he was charged with the murder of Mary McCarthy, and brought before the district court and remanded in custody. And that custody situation was extended into December, and then depositions were fixed in the district court in January. But again, now we know from documents recently discovered that as all the statements were collated, and it's very impressive when one looks back at that period in time to see how fast, how thorough, and how rapidly the statements were put together by the police, as the statements were being collated by about the 6th or 7th of December, State Solicitor for County Tipperary looked at what he had in front of him and he wrote the following letter. He said, this is undoubtedly a most difficult case and so far the evidence is not of a convincing character. However, by the 19th inst, matters may have assumed a different aspect. It would be necessary to have counsel assigned to conduct proceedings before the district court. So at that stage, the case was listed for mention for the 19th of December. But clearly, at a very early stage, there was an expression of concern. This was a weak case. It was going to be a difficult prosecution, and the evidence was far from being of a convincing character. And as we'll see, in effect, the evidence available to the prosecution did not improve from that day onwards, but the case continued nonetheless. The case moved forward into the district court in Tipperary. Depositions took place, and those of us who are a viewer as old as I am, or even older, will remember that depositions used to be an extremely painful process where the district court clerk would have to handwrite the statements of the people who were being deposed. But in 1941, the process was equally antiquarian. And in those circumstances, each of the witnesses they proposed to call were called to give evidence, including some of the children. And they were effectively led through their evidence. But what we've now discovered is that prior to this deposition, there was considerable anxiety within Angarda Siakona that the case might not get returned for trial. A sentence in one of the earlier reports says, if this case is returned for trial. So what happened before the depositions, again recently uncovered, indicates that the superintendent in charge, Superintendent Romani, had a very ropey Christmas. On the 26th and 27th of December, he was at work, and he was in Limerick prison, trying to identify prisoners who'd been put in the same cell as Harry Gleeson to see if Gleeson would speak in their presence and see if they could find out information which they could then use to be deployed against him in relation to the murder. And the fact that they went to such trouble to identify people for this purpose showed that they were concerned and worried. 
about the case that they already had. And in those circumstances, Superintendent Mahoney had to do a report. And he realized that these experienced prisoners were in bargaining mode. They said they would talk to the Gardaí if the Gardaí would help them in relation to their investigation. So in the course of his report, he said, number one witness was in a purely bargaining mood. I had nothing further to do with him. Apart altogether from his character and the charges that are pending against him, he would be the most unconvincing type of witness. He's shifty and unreliable looking. In relation to the second potential witness, he said, he would make a good witness, except for his character. He has been convicted of housebreaking in England and twice in this country, and is presently awaiting a trial on charges of horse stealing. But it didn't stop there, because we know that even after the deposition, Superintendent Manning was still looking around for anybody who'd been in prison in Limerick who might be able to give evidence to, to support the prosecution. And the third potential volunteer was identified in January. He approached the Garvey. He said he'd been in Limerick prison at the same time. He might have something that would be of considerable assistance. And once again, Superintendent Manning was extremely interested. But what's very impressive is that other Garvey who knew this witness wrote on the file that effectively this witness should not be touched. So, for example, one said, I attach for information a copy of Zed's criminal record. Zed is, in my mind, the worst type of criminal this country ever had. He is fit for anything and most unreliable. I believe that he would say and swear anything for two pints of porter. In order to gain the sympathy of the court when charged with a crime, he usually works himself into his fit. He and his friends could have read about the case in the paper, heard it discussed in the local public houses. Zed seems to have convinced a local solicitor in the town that there's a sum of 40 pounds due to him from the British Army, although he never spent one hour in that army. So we know at that stage that all of these steps were taken, but nothing emerged from those activities. But one can infer from it the anxiety of which I speak. In the district court, defense counsel was junior counsel Sean McBride. And I'll come back to him in a few moments. But he didn't cross-examine any of the witnesses and didn't seem to challenge the prosecution's case. And that was not unusual. Quite often, the defense team where depositions were taken, would reserve their position until the case became clear, and then effectively save up their defense points for the trial. But in this case, where we now know that the prosecution is such a concern about the case, one wonders, with the benefit of hindsight, what would have happened if there had been a challenge. But the district judge returned the case for trial to this court. And the matter came for trial in February 1941, the 17th, in a trial that was to last 10 days. I think we should focus just for a moment on the barristers who were in the case. They were an interesting combination of people. Their character and their experience was something that was going to impact on how the case progressed. First of all, for the prosecution, Joseph McCarthy, KC. And interesting, at that time, all the senior counsel were still referred to as King's counsel in the past. And he was also, historically, the father of Niall McCarthy, the great Supreme Court judge. An interesting person. A person who, from Ken Ferguson's book on the bar, was a person who had to give an undertaking not to practice as an architect, an engineer, or a quantity surveyor. So he was a person who obviously had an interesting history before that time and had to be blocked out. And when one looks at the transcript, this is just my own view, but when you look at the transcripts, as I had to do, and examine the way in which they approached the case, it's very interesting. McCarthy is waspish, sharp, southern, from Cork originally, adventurous. He's the one who takes the risks. He's the only prosecutor to get slapped down by the judge on a number of occasions. He's the creative mind. His junior counsel was the famous George Murnahan, BL, who later became a high court judge, much loved by some. And <laughs> he, he was different again. He was northern, arid, concise, 
excellent. His questions are crisp and concise and forensic. He never, ever goes anywhere that he shouldn't go, as Mr. McCarthy did. And you can see, again, the way in which each of these two counsel approaches their case. And it's also interesting for further researches done by Paddy Gagey, who's our Dean of History in the bar at the present time for me. He has identified in the course of other researches the fact that in the 1940s reports, these two come up again and again and again in the important cases for the Attorney General. They were the troubleshooting team for the Attorney General, and they were good. And this was going to be a difficult case, and clearly they've been picked for that particular purpose. The junior counsel, sorry, the senior counsel for the defence was a barrister known as James Nolan Whelan, King's counsel. He'd been born in 1880. He'd been called to the bar in 1904. He seems to have been the oldest of the people who were there. He had a very good civil practice. Uh, we know that he died in 1950. His approach towards the case is much more old world, courtly, polite, deferential to the judge, which has consequences, as we'll see later on. And he is somebody who appears to be somewhat tired at certain stages. It's quite clear that, for example, his junior counsel is allowed to do a lot of the very heavy lifting. We don't know whether this was what he wanted to do or whether it's because he effectively had to do so. And the reason that is also interesting for us is because Sean McBride was until 1936 the chief of staff of the IRA. He was a person who had only been called to the bar in 1937. So in technical terms, he was a junior counsel of four years standing, largely from the Western Circuit, dealing with a case in Tipperary, and this was a big case. And in circumstances where he had a lot of experience, he'd been present in London during the Anglo-Irish Treaty negotiations of 1921. He joined the ranks of the Irregulars and then broke his links with the IRA in the late 1930s. And as we know later, he became a minister for external affairs in 1948. He became a senior counsel in 1943. And later, much later, he won the Nobel and Lenin Peace Prize awards. And I remember as a student, and it must have been 1986 or 87, being here in this courtroom when as a very, very old man, Sean McBride came and did a case making a constitutional argument for somebody who was accused of an offence under the Offence Against the State Act 1939. And he sat in that front row and was making submissions in a very impenetrable French accented English. He had a very unusual accent. Again, one wonders what that was like in 1941. Certainly, I found it very difficult to understand him. But he was, even at that age, seeking to work and to advance the case on behalf of his client. Moving to the trial, a number of interesting features arose. The first wobble that can be seen is on the morning of the case, and this does happen from time to time, the prosecution applied to change the indictment. When they'd originally charged the accused, they had accused him of murder, uh, effectively between the 20th and the 21st, between the Wednesday and the Thursday, of the 20th and 20th, 1st of November of 1940, hedging their bets. The indictment, presumably drafted by Murnahan, said the 21st. But on the morning, somebody had decided that this needed to be changed. So at the request of the prosecution, it was changed to honour about the 20th or the 21st of November 1940. That this was to be very significant in the course of the trial. As we'll see later, a major issue rose about the time of death and the date itself of the death. The defence consented to the amendment, and one can see in the way in which Nolan Whelan consented that sense of courtly, old world, noblesse oblige. But the question arises, should he have consented? It may well have been a very different case if he had not. At the outset of the case, again, a feature which resonates with modern cases, the defence asked the court to direct that a stenographer would record the opening speech, and the judge refused. Why this was done, we don't know. But as a result, we're dependent upon 
newspaper reports for the content of the opening speech. And it would appear from that opening speech that Mr. McCarthy, who was put in effectively to open the door, gave a speech which was relatively high. He described the savage injuries, he described the accused's arrival in the Garda Station UN, and he then used the phrase, the first information the authorities got of a murder was the murder was a crafty, cold-blooded, black-hearted, as the mind of man could conceive. So the temperature rose at the very outset. This was the darkest of the darkest of cases, and the jury were given that impression from the very beginning. The prosecution also emphasized the fact that the defendant had initially denied recognizing the victim or the dog. They said that this was one of many steps taken by him to conceal his role in the commission of the crime. They suggested that he had ambushed Mary McCarthy, that he was the person responsible for shooting her, that his uncle had a gun of the same type, that his uncle had cartridges of the same type that were used in the course of the killing. And they said, in addition, the prosecution would show that there was an association between the deceased and the accused, which was immoral. And in those circumstances, they went then into the details of the evidence. And they said that Mary McCarthy had left her house around 6.30 p.m. when it was dusk, had said goodbye to her children, had given them a meal, and headed off into the sunset. At the same time, a neighbor, a man named Hennessy, said he heard two shots being fired. He was about a quarter of a mile away, around the same time. And the prosecution suggested that those were the shots that had killed Mary McCarthy. So it becomes obvious from even the opening speech that although the prosecution have hedged their bets by effectively arguing that the death could have occurred either on the 20th or on the 21st, their preferred theory is the 20th, but for a very good reason. The reason being that for a period of an hour and a half on the 20th, there was no alibi for Harry Gleason, but for the morning of the 21st, in substance, there was. Moving to the trial itself, as the evidence began to be, unfolded, to, be, to be led, a number of key issues arose. They also arose at a later stage as well. Just taking those issues in turn, the first issue that arose was the time at which Mary McCarthy had died. And Dr. O'Connor, who had been the first doctor to examine the body on the 21st of November at 1.15 p.m., took a temperature of 96 degrees Fahrenheit. And he effectively then was the first person to carry out a measurement that was relied upon by the state pathologist. The state pathologist was Dr. McGrath, a very experienced witness. And he said that at first, from his post-mortem examination, that this was all consistent with Mary McCarthy having been murdered on the evening of Wednesday, the 20th of November. And yet the problem arose to the prosecution. How could this be where the body was still warm on the morning of the 21st? Dr. McGrath suggested that if he applied the concept of rigor mortis and took into account the length of time that took to give effect, that the killing could have taken place 10 or 20 hours before Dr. O'Connor's examination. Now, he was cross-examined painstakingly by McBride, thorough, detailed, and very effective cross-examination, and he made a lot of concessions. The defense signaled they were going to call a Dr. Flood, a very, a very renowned surgeon in Dublin, who would challenge some of the evidence put forward by the prosecution. And fundamentally, in the course of that particular cross-examination, Dr. McGrath, as a good expert independent professional witness, agreed with a lot of the questions that were put to him. And he also appeared to agree that if you took the canine warmth factor theory away from the case, if you took away from the equation the idea that this small black dog lying on top of the body could keep it warm overnight and keep it to the temperature of 96 Fahrenheit by one o'clock the following day, it was inexplicable how Mary McCarthy could have died on the 20th. So major inroads were made into the theory that the prosecution had put forward. 
He also gave evidence that the body was dry. He gave evidence that there was very little blood at the scene. He said he had found some semen stains on the front of a shirt belonging to the accused, which had been shown to him, but he accepted that this was something which could have been there for months. And in those circumstances, he provided evidence that became weaker and weaker from the prosecution's case as his cross-examination proceeded. And you can see this in the transcript as piece by piece, reasonable doubts are being raised, concessions are being given, and the prosecution's favorite theory is beginning to crumble. But coming to the rescue was the trial judge, Mr. Justice Martin McGuire, a person who played a very significant role in the course of that trial. And McGuire appears to be very experienced, born in Fermanagh, and he later became I think, a Supreme Court judge as well. But as the prosecution's medical evidence was sinking, he leaned forward and asked a very pointed question. He said to Dr. McGrath, from your post-mortem examination, was there anything inconsistent with this woman having been shot between 6.30 and 7 on Wednesday, the 20th of November? And the doctor said no. But the craftiness of the question was effectively to say, ignore all he's just said. Focus on your own post-mortem examination. Is that inconsistent with the 20th? And the doctor said no. So in effect, the prosecution found themselves in a position to totter on. And lots of the impact of the prosecution, or the defense's cross-examination, were neutralized by that interventionist question. Why was it so important for the prosecution to emphasize the 20th? As I say, the question of the alibi was there. And the judge said in the course of his summation at the end of the case, he said, the prosecution's came in four points. Harry Gleason shot this woman between 5.30 p.m. and 5.40 p.m. on the afternoon of the 20th of November, at or near the place where her body was found. Two, the shots were heard by Hennessy, the neighbor, definitely and clearly heard, and they were unexplained. Three, he used the guns and the cartridges that had been produced in evidence to do so, and he left her there dead and dying and returned to his house shortly after 6 p.m. that evening. The problem that confronted the prosecution in the hours that followed was that there were four people in the Caesar's house that night from seven o'clock onwards. Mr. and Mrs. Caesar and Thomas Reed, who was a farm. Reed was interviewed by the Gardaí and said, that Harry Gleason had been there throughout the whole course of the night. But there was a further development. Reed claimed that he had been subject to intense pressure by the Gardaí, including assaults, when he went to be interviewed, and that the assaults were inflicted upon him to persuade him to change his evidence, which he refused to do. So with this situation, the prosecution have a position where they have four people in the house, all of whom have made statements, and including the accused, but the three people who are not accused are confirming that Gleason was with them until seven o'clock the following morning. There was forensic evidence of a very limited nature. There was some evidence of semen found in the vagina of Mary McCarthy, but no identification as to whose it was, a big discussion as to how long it could have been there, nothing remotely connecting to the kind of forensic proof that we would be used to today, with blood groups, DNA, points of connection, nothing of that kind at all. And yet remarkably, even with the benefit of hindsight, very rapidly, the prosecution were given permission to make the case that these were pieces of evidence that the jury could take into account. And in fact, objectively speaking, there was no evidence to show that Mary McCarthy had engaged in sexual activity with Harry Gleason at all. But the case continued to proceed under the presumption that it must have happened. And in those circumstances, it, it rolled on. Also, it emerged later on from further discussions that in the inquest which had taken place, but the doctors had been asked the question, how long would the body have lain where it was? And the answer recorded was not more than 10 hours. In other words, it must have been there on the 21st, Thursday. A second issue that arose 
related to the nature of the firearm used and the weapon, the uh, cartridges used. Uh, a witness was called from Fian's shop in Cashel, Mr. Leamy, to say that John Caesar had purchased number five shotgun cartridges in October on a particular date. And he produced the receipt. The judge then inquired as to where was the register, which is the official register for firearms and firearms related sales. It wasn't present. The judge directed that it should be produced. Mr. McCarthy leaned in to indicate that it had been examined and wouldn't be of any assistance. For whatever reason, the register was never produced. In much more recent times, it was identified and it was clear that there had been no recorded purchase by Mr. Caesar on that date and that the relevant entry had been altered by somebody after the event. Again, this was denied and kept back from the defence, who certainly could have used it to launch a very probing cross-examination on this particular issue. And in those circumstances, what's striking about this evidence compared again to a prosecution any time in the last 30 years is that the prosecution perceived on the basis that there was a shotgun in the house, the defendant would have had access to it if he wanted it. It was of the same type as the one that was used in this case, not that it was the same gun. So it must have been the same gun and it must have been access afforded to the accused in those circumstances. And again, a huge level of presumption and supposition seems to have dominated and actuated the way in which the case proceeded. The third issue was the issue of the children. And the children were in a very pitiable and difficult situation, not just because of the tragic death of their mothers, but they now suddenly found themselves pitched from this remote hamlet in County Tipperary from this simple agrarian life that they'd led and found themselves here and found themselves being interviewed by the police and found themselves dealing with all the trauma of that process. And the guard, they were worried. We now know that the guards in the course of their own assessment identified the witnesses in terms of a pecking order. Mary McCarthy, aged 19, was assessed as, quote, a poor type of witness. Patrick McCarthy, aged 15, was assessed as being a poor witness. In the words of the statement, he too is not a good witness. And Michael, who was 12, was assessed as being, quote, the best of the witnesses. The shape of the courtroom in 1941 was pretty much the way it is today, but the arrangements for witnesses were somewhat different. And the witness had to speak from a much more exposed position, a much more intimidating location. So one can only imagine how daunting it must have been, in particular for Michael McCarthy, to have to give evidence in this court. It took nearly all of day two for him to give the evidence that he had to uh, tender. He was described by one observer as being diminutive and timid looking. And the transcript is excruciating because everyone is trying to get the child to answer questions. And piece by piece, he clearly finds it very difficult to answer questions. He then contradicts himself. The judge in particular leans in and tries to be as helpful as possible to elicit questions and then clearly gets very frustrated that he won't answer simple questions. And when it came down to counting, he indicated that he couldn't count beyond 10, that he couldn't read a clock. So questions about time, months, dates, circumstances, all began to become extremely hazy. And in the process of the evidence itself, one point they managed to elicit was the suggestion that he had seen his mother having a row with Harry Gleason sometime about goats. And that in the course of that discussion, his mother had said that she would take Harry Gleason to law on account of the child. How that statement was admitted, it's hard to understand. Clearly it's hearsay, and clearly it's a breach of the rule against Orvie Christie, a 1914 case, where such statements can be admissible, but only if there is evidence to show that the accused by his demeanor and words accepted what was said. The words spoken in his presence were ones that were accepted by him. And in this case, those words weren't accepted. However, that evidence remained 
and formed an important part of what happened later in the trial. But there was one important feature of the children's evidence. Mary and Patrick gave very inconsequential evidence. But as the trial progressed, we moved from day two and day three and day four, we've gone through the medical evidence, weak, gone through the forensic evidence, weak, we've gone through the firearms evidence, generic. We've gone through the children's evidence, very, very poor and frustrating. And one comes back again to the state solicitor from County Tipperary, so far the evidence is not of a convincing character. So perhaps somebody on the prosecution team at that stage decided that something more dramatic was necessary to inject a bit of life into the case, because that's what happened next. Superintendent Mahoney testified on day six. The children, you will recall, have given evidence on days two and three. And he said that in the course of the investigation, he'd had calls to bring Harry Gleason to the McCarthy's house to identify a sack of potatoes, which was an issue, to see who owned the sack. And he directed that two of the children, Michael and Patrick, should come with him at that time. And he wished to give evidence of the notes that he said he took at the time of the ensuing confrontation. Now, at that point, insofar as the transcript can show a change in temperature in a courtroom, things become stratospherically hot. The defense, who are previously quiet and acceptable, become very agitated. But they knew about this because it had been served upon them in advance. They knew that this was the note and they objected in the strongest possible terms, because here on day six, an attempt was being made to introduce evidence through the superintendent about what the children had said, but the children themselves, who were witnesses in the case, had given no evidence about this at all. And we'll see later on that the prosecutor who examined them, Murnahan, did the correct thing. He asked the questions only as far as they were permissible and admissible, and then stopped. But now on day six, there's an attempt to introduce this confrontation. There was uh, an objection. The objection was very rapidly rejected by the trial judge who allowed the evidence to proceed. And again, when the superintendent went to give his evidence, he was cross-examined very vigorously about how he'd taken down these notes. And it emerged in a very uncomfortable cross-examination from his point of view that he lost his original notes or abandoned them. He'd made up the documents later on. The documents he was relying upon in court were not the actual contemporary documents. He hadn't heard all of the discussion, but ultimately this was what had taken place. And the extracts from the confrontation, if you bear with me, are important because these are examples of the questions that were said. So the superintendent said this, Michael McCarthy had confronted the accused and said, what are you looking for, Harry? Harry Gleason made no answer. Then Michael McCarthy said, what are you looking for, Harry? And Harry Gleason replied, the bag that was taken off the pump. Michael McCarthy said, what about the bag my mother gave you on Tuesday? Harry Gleason replied, I got no bag from your mother on Tuesday. Michael McCarthy then said, at the same time pointing his finger at Harry Gleason, you did, you did, you did, and something else which I couldn't remember. At that point, I took out my notebook and began to take notes. Then Harry Gleason said, Tuesday evening, what time? Michael McCarthy said, did she not tell you that she gave you a bag sometime on Tuesday? Harry Gleason replied, I wasn't speaking to your mother, high or dry, on Tuesday. Michael McCarthy said, you were. She gave you a bag, but don't be telling lies. She did, she gave you a bag. She went out on Tuesday night to get the potatoes from you because you were to give them to her and the old people were in Cashel. Harry Gleason said, how can you prove that? Then Paddy McCarthy said, you were the father of the last child, Harry. My mother told me. Harry Gleason said, people can tell lies. Your mother could be telling you things or it could be other people. Michael McCarthy said, you were the father of the last child. You were, you were, you were. 
and Michael McCarthy became angry at this time. Harry Gleason addressed Paddy McCarthy and said, had I ever an angry word with you, Sonny? And Paddy McCarthy said, you had not. And Michael McCarthy said, no, but you have it, my mother, when she said you were the father of the last child. Harry Gleason said, who was to prove that? Paddy McCarthy said, my mother said it. And then Gleason said, your mother was a liar, the Lord of mercy on her soul. So all of this dramatic evidence is introduced to have an effect of the most prejudicial kind on the accused. Contrasted with what was asked of the children on day two. Merhan said, after you picked out the bag for Sergeant Kelly, were you asked to pick out a bag by Superintendent Manning? Answer, yes. Was it the same bag? Yes. Question 615, did you often have potatoes to eat? Answer, yes, sometimes. No more questions. So the witnesses have been there. They could have been asked those questions, and they weren't. Why was this? And one is left with the impression that somebody somewhere took a conscious decision not to ask them questions about these issues. Was it because the McCarthys wouldn't agree with what the Garley said? Or was it because the Garley didn't want any exploration and cross-examination of how it came to be that the children had made statements incorporating these particular pieces of information? It's also important to note that in the district court, Michael McCarthy had been asked a question about this particular date, and he said, when I was leaving, I don't remember what I said to Gleason, whether what I said was friendly or not. So they knew the child had previously declined to swear to this particular information, but they still sought to introduce it. What effect did this have? Well, the intended effect clearly was to show, one, that the McCarthy children were angry with the accused. Two, that they believed he was a liar. Three, that they believed he was going to meet with their mother on the night of the 20th of November and that he'd met with her the previous night. Four, that they believed that the meeting was to have taken place at a particular location. And five, they believed because their mother had told them that he was the father of the last child. So there are shades in all of this of the famous Lyndon Johnson stratagem where he was told that one of his political opponents uh, might be and was suspected to be homosexual in the 1950s in America. When the investigators came back and said, Mr. Johnson, this doesn't seem to be true, he said, let it out and let's see him deny it. And his unfortunate opponent therefore had to deny this vigorously in the public domain and was damaged accordingly. Now, at this stage in the case, the judge was allowing this information be provided in those circumstances. The defence clearly felt very sore about this and thought that this was some kind of a stunt. And later on, Mr. Uh, Sean McBride, in the course of his speech, complained about this and said this was totally unfair and he believed it had been engineered. Well, as we now know, he was more right than he knew. Because in the course of the Garda files, which were discovered again in the last two years, deep in the file is a statement from January 1941 from another guard. His name is Garda Connolly. And in the course of his statement, he has made it for a purpose that doesn't seem to be clear, obviously to explain something to someone. The statement has never seems to have been disclosed to the defence. It's never referred to the trial. Connolly's existence is never acknowledged by the superintendent when he gives evidence about the confrontation. But this is what he has to say. And perhaps if you bear with me, I'd like to read this statement in this court because it wasn't read then and it should have been. He said, I remember the 26th of November, 1940. On that day, I was on duty near the house of the deceased woman, Mary McCarthy. I was in conversation with her sons, Patrick and Michael McCarthy, with whom I had acquired some degree of friendship and confidence. Having heard from some members of the investigating party that Harry Gleason was being taken to the McCarthy's abode for the purposes of identifying, if possible, a bag alleged by him to have been taken or possibly taken from a pump in Caesar's field by one of the McCarthy family, I instructed the McCarthy boys to ask Harry Gleason the following questions as soon as the search of McCarthy's house had begun. 
A, one, what were you looking for, Harry? Two, what's the bag that my mother gave you for the potatoes on Tuesday evening? Three, didn't you tell her to meet you at the dugout field on Wednesday night for the butter potatoes? Four, what happened when she meet, went to meet you, Harry? Michael McCarthy undertook to ask these questions, but from the position where I was standing when the confrontation took place, I wasn't in a position to hear what was actually said. So in effect, the entire thing was a setup to create a false confrontation, to damage the accused in the eyes of the jury, and this particular material was kept back. Now, one might say that perhaps in the case, uh, generally in a case, something of this nature would be of minor impact, but it's quite clear from everything we can see in the historical record that this was very significant. I'll come to this in a few moments. Often when you look from a perspective of a defendant and his legal team, for the points where they believe they've been damaged most, you look at the notice of appeal, or you look at the application for leave to appeal at the end of the case. This featured large. And I think from that we can infer that this was dramatic. It was a jury trial. It left a lasting and lingering impression within the court itself. Even though at a later stage, the trial judge clearly recognizing that he had gone too far by letting it through, did, try to, did say to the jury, well, this didn't have, in, indicate evidence of paternity. But the impact of the evidence was such it should never, ever have been admitted. And in those circumstances, that represented a very significant feature in the case itself. The last feature. In the course of the trial, as it came to an end in, the, in terms of the prosecution's case, it, it became apparent that the prosecution were not going to call the Caesars. So they'd called Thomas Reeve, who they believed to be a hostile witness, but he supported Harry Gleason's position and did not give evidence hostile to his position. Mr. and Mrs. Caesar weren't called to give evidence at all. And this has also been an abiding mystery. The defense didn't call them either, which became a point at the end of the trial. But let's look at the prosecution for a moment. Here we have people who are of good standing, they're in the community, they're material witnesses, and yet they weren't caught. We now know from the Garda file that Superintendent Mahoney in December of 1940 wrote the following. It said, in relation to Mr. Caesar, he must be called for the defense if the case goes on for trial and something useful may be elicited at cross-examination. So he regards him as a truthful witness. It isn't a question of any uh, hostile element, but for tactical, strategic reasons, he thinks it's best to be left over to the defense. Likewise with Mrs. Caesar. Mrs. Caesar, quote, appears to be an honest, decent woman, but is cute and deep. She says the gun was always kept in the bedroom and that when she herself and her husband were away from the house, the room was always locked. She too says that the accused did not leave the house after her return from Cashel, the gist of this evidence is that the accused could not have got the gun on the 20th of November, full stop. It would be more useful to be in a position to cross-examine her than to have her as a state witness. Now, some people always say that if you look back at a case in this antiquity, it's unfair to apply the standards of today to the appropriate standards of that time. But from the case of Orr v. Harris in 1927 to other cases in 1944, which I've managed to track down just in the course of researching this, there are statements such as the following from Lord Ewart, 1927, Two Kings Bench Division. In criminal cases, the prosecution is bound to call all the material witnesses before the court, even though they give inconsistent accounts, in order that the whole of the facts may be before the jury. And although that and other cases recognize the existence of a prosecutorial discretion, that discretion should be exercised in favor of ensuring the witnesses who are not suspected to be untruthful should be called. But this became important because at a later stage in the case, when it came to the judges summing up, 
which was extremely partial and very much in favor of the prosecution. He identified Michael McCarthy's evidence, and he said, Michael McCarthy, the 15-year-old boy's evidence was, or Trotter Bowe's evidence, was supported by a number of factors. And he said this, quote, by the bag which he produced and identified, and about which gentlemen, because there were no ladies in the jury, there is no explanation. No one came from the Caesar's household to claim the bag and explain what it was doing there. Now, at that point, Mrs. Caesar, who was sitting up where Dermot Gleeson is, stood up, and it's recorded on the transcript that she said, pardon me, judge, we were not called. And the judge said, remove that woman from court. And she was. So here we have a situation where the judge saw this as being material and important, and it was. Of course it was. Because these were witnesses whose credibility was not being impugned by the prosecution, but they were being deliberately left to one side and trying to take the tactical advantage at the end of saying, well, there's nobody here to explain this particular type of information. The case moved on. And in the end, we go to a situation where the prosecution case concluded. The defendant himself gave evidence. And he was cross-examined at great length by Mr. McCarthy. And the cross-examination, again, was not scoring any bullseyes, but nudging, pushing, challenging plausibility, emphasizing the slowness of Harry Gleason to identify the victim. But effectively, no direct hits of any kind appear to have been launched on him in that sense. Dr. Flood, who was his medical witness, was very authoritative, very clear, absolutely unequivocal. He said that the rigor mortis test wasn't appropriate, the body temperature had to be decided by the question of blood, blood levels, and he was absolutely certain that in those circumstances that the Mary McCarthy could not have been killed more than two to five hours before her body was examined by Dr. O'Connor. And that evidence was there and available for the jury as well. Two other witnesses were called, one of whom said, as an engineer, that it wouldn't be possible or feasible for Harry Gleason to see the body fully of Mary McCarthy when he looked over the head. Measurements were done, the matter was identified for that particular purpose. And finally, a witness called Mr. Barron was called to say that although he used to normally meet Harry Gleason on a Wednesday evening, he had no plan to meet him that evening. And also, perhaps importantly, that Harry Gleason was someone who was hard of hearing. Again, a feature in terms of his response to some of the questions may well be explained by that. The trial came to an end. There was, however, a significant battle just before the jury went out. And that battle came down to the question of the judge's charge. And the judge's charge was uh, very lengthy, but uh, identified the prosecution evidence with great particularity and didn't identify many of the defense points. And Nolan Whelan rose to his feet at the end of the charge and protested. And a very bitter exchange takes place where Nolan Whelan says, you haven't put the defense case. You haven't put the following points. They haven't been mentioned by you at all. And the judge's response was, well, you've mentioned them in your closing speech. Why do I have to mention them again? So again, the, the, the conflict, the, the rage between them was very, very sharp and very, very clear. And at one point in the course of that particular exchange, the judge said, why do I have to do this? Do you regard this as being important? And the normally long-winded Nolan Whelan said, I regard it as vital. The trial judge then reluctantly addressed the jury very briefly, addressing a number of the points only, and the jury were effectively sent out to deliberate and to consider the position. The way in which the judge addressed the jury was actually quite striking. 
He expressly directed that some of the defence lines of engagement, such as the fact that the body could have been taken to the location, having uh, the murder having taken place somewhere else, were, in his words, fantastic. He actually also, at another stage, on day 10, appeared to blame Harry Gleeson for the confrontation that we now know was staged and engineered by the Gardaí. He said to the jury, one would have thought, gentlemen, that a few words of sympathy with these young children on the loss of their mother would have been more in keeping with the situation than to get into an altercation or an argument with the little boys. In relation to the defence theory concerning the location and the time of death, he said, it seems to me that this is very fantastic and far-fetched. So all of this was the type of presentation that was given to the jurors, and they took two and a half hours to convict. And when they returned with a verdict of guilty of murder, they put in a rider, which did occur from time to time at that stage, a strong recommendation to mercy. And the trial judge told them that this rider would be brought to the attention of the relevant authorities. And in those circumstances, he turned to the accused and he asked him whether there was any reason why the sentence of death should not be passed. And at that point, the defendant said something he'd said at every stage of the process. He had a particular formula which he deployed and he said, I had neither hand, act, or part in it. Then Mr. Justin McGuire pronounced the death sentence and the date for execution was fixed for the 24th of March of 1941. And before he was taken to Mountjoy Prison, the accused would have heard his counsel effectively protesting to the judge about the way in which matters had proceeded. And in the course of that application for leave to appeal, he set out the issues that he considered to be very important. And very briefly, from the defendant's point of view, at the end of this trial, number one was the confrontation. It should never have been admitted in evidence. And in my opinion, it shouldn't have been. Secondly, there was a failure by the trial judge to put the defence case to the jury in relation to the alleged immoral association between uh, Ms. McCarthy and the accused. There being no evidence to support that pro process at all. Third, the trial judge had failed and had refused to mention to the jury the fact that the deceased's clothes were dry when Dr. O'Connor visited the scene. Fourth, that the judge failed to put the entire defence case to the jury. And then fifth one, unusual for its time, and I think unusual today. And I quote from Mr. Nolan Whelan, where he said, by the nature of the questions asked by your Lordship when various witnesses were giving their evidence, your Lordship clearly indicated to the jury that you believed in the guilt of the accused. And Mr. Justice McGuire replied, you don't specify the witnesses or the questions. And then he says somewhat archly, but there was no objection at the trial to any of the questions I asked of any witness. Is that all? And then refused the application. So in those circumstances, the trial judge, one might infer, had seen that there had not been an objection to his manifold questions throughout the course of the trial. Coming back to my point about the identification of the character of the defence counsel as being courtly or deferential to him. But he certainly took full advantage of it. I think it's fair to say, certainly from my reading of the evidence, that Mr Justin McGuire never lost an opportunity to ask questions that were helpful to the prosecution. And this became a feature in the course of the case itself. The accused was therefore sent to Mountjoy Prison. The matters then moved very rapidly to deal with the appeal. And it's clear from all the available documentation that the defence teams were very agitated about the situation. So documents were drafted rapidly 
a notice of appeal was uh, prepared. The case was uh, sent me, to the Court of Criminal Appeal, and the sentence was, or the death sentence was put back. The appeal was then listed on the 31st of March, and it finished on the 3rd of April, with a four-day appeal in the Court of Criminal Appeal. And the judges there were Chief Justice Timothy Sullivan, Mr. Justice Conor McGuire, and Mr. Justice Henry Hanna. Nolan Whelan did the first two days of the appeal, dealing mostly with his attack on the trial judge's conduct of the trial. And Mr. McBride then dealt the third day with elements of new evidence which had been put forward. Because after the case was over, two local witnesses came forward and said, well, actually, we'd heard shots fired on the morning of the 21st, the Thursday. And their statements were compiled and they were submitted to the Court of Criminal Appeal. And again, what limited record there is in the Court of Criminal Appeal shows that that court dismissed the appeal pretty rapidly and took the view that the judge's interventions were not as portrayed by the defence. But if the defendants had any protests to make about the children's evidence or their matters, they could have had them recalled and they hadn't done so in relation to the Caesars, that they could have called the Caesars, but they hadn't done so. And the door was shut very rapidly. And what's interesting, and I'll come back to this point in a moment, Chief Justice Sullivan was the presiding judge. And in the case, there was a significant issue about the introduction of statements made by third parties in the presence of the accused that doesn't seem to have formed any clear part of the process at all. But this is what the court said in the final part of its assessment. It said, the court, this is the Court of Criminal Appeal, is of the opinion that no reasonable jury should be influenced by the evidence of Maloney and Common, the two new witnesses, in arriving at the conclusions at the time in which Mary McCarthy was murdered and the appeal was dismissed. Now the execution was set for the 23rd of April. And by this stage, the, the options were running out. The next line of appeal was to seek a certificate from the Attorney General to try and go to the Supreme Court. Within 24 hours, that was rejected. Again, there are documents showing the detailed legal arguments being put forward by the applicants. In particular, they listed 25 matters where they claimed uh, the judge, trial judge had, uh, charge was defective and they identified a number of other significant flaws in the case. Final throw of the dice was an application for a reprieve. A petition was put together. 7,000 signatures were gathered. The Taoiseach was lobbied on the issue and the cabinet were effectively convoked to consider this point because the date for execution was coming closer and closer. Now at this point, we've now also discovered some other documents which perhaps cast a light on the process at that very critical stage. Superintendent Mahoney appears to be asked to prepare a report for the Department of Justice, which would then be effectively transmitted in some form to the, to the cabinet in relation to whether or not the defendant should be given a reprieve. And this document was a pretty savage document. He said things like, they'll never charge with an offence since the establishment of the Gardaí. His mother was a noted shoplifter. His two brothers who were still believed to be pilferers only. While he denied any immoral relations with the deceased, it must be inferred from his own admissions and the evidence of those who saw them that such activities did exist. It must have been the case. Again, this presumption, this assumption, this necessary reliance upon hypothesis, but not evidence. And then he finally said that Gleason is the type of man capable of committing this crime. There can be no doubt he's something of a sadist. But bear in mind that this is a person who has no previous convictions. And this is the Garda report going to the Department of Justice as to whether this man should be executed or not. There's more in the document, shall spare you. But in terms of the overall tenor of the document, I think it's fair to say that the report portrayed Mr. Gleason as a person who was nefarious and unworthy of reprieve. Now, that particular report was toned down by the Department of Justice. They prepared a much more sanitized version, but they reflected the guards' views. 
But there was somebody else writing a letter as well. Because it appears that the trial judge, Mr. Justice McGuire, was asked for a report. And he sent in his report. Now, you remember, recall a few moments ago that he'd said to the jury that the rider would be brought to the attention of the relevant authorities, as it had been. And then he wrote to the Department of Justice in the following terms. Dear Mr. Roach, in respect of your letter of yesterday, I can recall nothing in this case which would lead me to doubt that the verdict of guilty was correct and just. I was in entire agreement with the verdict. With regard to the recommendation to mercy made by the jury, I'm not aware of anything in the case on which this recommendation can be fairly and justly granted. The murder was one of exceptional brutality. The motive which appears to have actuated the crime was sordid and of a type full of danger to the public peace. The victim was a quiet, inoffensive woman, struggling hard to rear her six illegitimate children. I am unable to recall any extenuating circumstance or redeeming feature in the conduct of the prisoner in this very grave case. Yours sincerely, Martin C. McGuire. So as you can see, that conveyed a very starkly different view on the issue of reprieve to that which was held by the jury. Finally, the Department of Justice's own memorandum into the cabinet said, Gleason's general character is not good. They allege incidents showing a tendency to violence and cruelty, but nothing of this nature was actually charged against him. The next document that we have to move to is a very terse document coming from the cabinet. And it was on the 18th of April, 1941. The government considered the petition, considered the case, and in a minute of that date from the Department of the Taoiseach, it was said, the case was considered by the government on the 18th inst. It was decided that the circumstances were not such as would justify the exercise of the prerogative of mercy, and the law must take its course. And this information was communicated to the defendant's solicitor, Mr. Timoney, on the 19th of April, 1941, and the execution date was set. What is remarkable looking at the documentation in this case is how fast everything happened. The murder occurs at the end of November. The arrest is in early December. The depositions are in January. The trial is in February. The Court of Criminal Appeal is March, April, and the execution is at the end of April. And there does appear to have been, from other information, a type of common law tradition whereby once a person was convicted, it was considered to be unfair to make them hang around for any length of time. So everything was fast-tracked. Everything was expedited. And a recent documentary in the BBC from the end of 2014 confirmed this fact. This seems to have been the convention that applied in those circumstances. So at this stage, all appears to be set. But there were two further twists. The first is that <clears throat> Sean McBride received a message which um, came from the prison on the day before the execution. And the message indicated that the prisoner was agitated and wished to see him. So he immediately got into his car and drove at high speed to Mountjoy Prison. Uh, years later, uh, Jared Charlton, who was the father of our colleague, Jerry Charlton, and the uncle of Libby, uh, who's junior counsel, had worked with Sean McBride for many years. And he wrote me a letter about this particular point, which is very short, but I think highlights the nature of the concerns. He described a conversation in 1960 where Sean McBride spoke to him about his deep and abiding concerns about the case. He believed it had been extremely unfair at that stage. And Mr. Charlton writes this. Mr. McBride told me that on the day prior to the morning of the execution, he received an urgent telephone call from Mountjoy Prison, stating that the condemned man was very anxious to see him before his impending execution. It's believed that Mr. Pierpoint, who was then in the prison finalizing arrangements for the execution, against that backdrop, he went instantly to the prison. He received the phone call with mixed feelings that perhaps, after all, his client had been guilty of the murder and wanted to unburden himself prior to his impending execution. 
a deathbed confession, perhaps. Not so. In the prison, Harry Gleason shook Mr. McBride firmly by the hand, thanked him for all he had done in his defence and in the subsequent public campaign. He wanted Mr. McBride to know that he was innocent of the murder, that he'd made his peace with God, and that he was ready to meet his maker. And he had one request, that Mr. McBride, after his execution, would continue the battle to establish his innocence of the offence of which he'd been wrongly convicted. It ended a very sad and traumatic interview. On the last day, we have a letter that was sent by the chaplain in the prison, a Father John Kelly, who wrote to another person who'd been to visit the accused before he died. And he said this, and again, perhaps juxtapose this with Superintendent Matney's report, with some of the other evidence that you've heard throughout the case. He said, you'll be glad though not surprised to know that our friend Henry Gleason made a most edifying end today. He slept peacefully during the night, had to be awakened this morning. Before I saw him, there was a string of visitors as the warders called in to wish him farewell. The governor was the last. Then I had a short chat with him. Confession was followed by mass, at which he assisted most devoutly and received Holy Communion. Then I gave him the last blessing and we began to recite his favorite uh, ejaculations. He answered these bravely and right up to the end, I think his last words were, my God, I love you. He has promised not to forget us who are left behind below and to help us when our time comes. You will have the pleasure of knowing that your visits were greatly appreciated. I hope that you will remember me in my work, John Kelly. And then finally, the prison file discloses a memorandum of the 23rd of April 1941 from Mountjoy Prison, which states, and I quote, Governor of Mountjoy Prison telephoned. The sentence of death passed on Henry Gleason was carried out this morning at 8 a.m. No unusual incident occurred. At this point, the trial process had come to an end. Its consequences had been uh, effectively achieved, and Harry Gleason was dead. But the case was a case that always left a niggle. And it wasn't just a question of members of Mr. Gleason's family. Even within the state system itself, over the decades that followed, various members of the Department of Justice, even one Minister for Justice, expressed concerns about what had taken place and asked for this matter to be reviewed and to be investigated. What's very interesting in the course of the research done here, and it's a very brief point, <clears throat> much of this case, I think, turned on this question of the confrontation and the admissibility of evidence. But I came across something in the course of research this week, which is potentially remarkable or interesting, at least from a lawyer's perspective. It's a case called The People Against O'Shea. It's 1943. It's in Fruin at page 50. It's a court of criminal appeal case. On the court of criminal appeal case, sorry, bench rather, are Chief Justice Sullivan, who was on the court of criminal appeal in the Gleason case, and Martin McGuire, who was the judge in the trial of Mr. Gleason? And the second issue in the case is about Orvi Christie and the admissibility of statements made in the presence of the accused. And there is an absolutely clear authoritative indication which says a statement made in the presence of an accused person is not evidence against him of the truth of the statement. That principle was applied by the trial judge in this case, that's the O'Shea case. The conduct of the accused when these statements were made was such as would entitle the jury to say that he accepted them as true. He said, in those circumstances, otherwise, it says, um, sorry, the learned judge told the jury a statement made in the presence of an accused person in circumstances which might be expected to call for some explanation or denial is not evidence of the facts unless his words and conduct are such as to satisfy the jury that he accepted they were true. 
So they restate Christie, they make it very clear what should take place. It's not admissible evidence unless those matters are there. And yet, two of the three judges had effectively allowed that point go by in the Gleason case only two years before. Were they affected by this? Who can tell? I mentioned earlier on the Mr. Gleason had used of not having any hand act or part in it. Curiously, at page 53 of the judgment, Chief Justice Sullivan, when dealing with a different issue, says he heard the evidence of the guards of every rank who had any hand, act, or part in. Perhaps that phrase had resonated in some people's minds. But in essence, it's clear that in 1944, the law was very clearly applied in one case, but in 1941, it wasn't. In conclusion, thereafter, Mr. McCarthy became a circuit court judge. Mr. Murnahan became high court judge. Uh, Mr. Nolan Whelan passed away in 1950. Sean McBride moved to the dizzy heights, of which we're all aware. But this never left MacBride. It always, always haunted him. He wrote about it in his memoirs. He spoke to people on a regular basis. This was a case where he obviously had an intense, profound sense of regret. Was it something he'd done or not done? I think it would be unfair to blame the defendants, a legal team in relation to the case. The transcript shows that they did their job as best they could. There is perhaps just one area where they may have been surprised by circumstance, which was that there was no protest about the increasing interventionism of the trial judge and that was something which the trial judge noticed himself and proceeded to become more and more interventionist as time went by. The McCarthy children, uh, sadly, found themselves back before District Judge Troy, the same judge who had declined to send them to the industrial schools, but that's where they went. And orders were made in their regard on the 9th of May of 1941, the end of that family and its united position in Tipperary. Their house fell into ruin and thereafter they vanished into history. What does this case bear in mind for us today as barristers. Well, I'd just like to remember um, <clears throat> two people today uh, who were very close friends of mine, Edward Cummins and Adrian Hardyman. Again, a bit like the barristers in this case, very different personalities. Edward, patrician, very learned, very wise, mostly a prosecutor, the kind of person the Attorney General would call upon when he or she was in difficulties, but wise, kindly, and a tremendous mentor. Adrian Hardyman was my old master, mostly for the defense, I think hardly ever for the prosecution, creative, brilliant, enthusiastic. Both of these very different men said to me and said to others and said it in their own pronouncements elsewhere how much they believed in the system of criminal justice which we administer and which is looked after in courtrooms such as this. How vital it is that that system is always maintained to the highest standards. How important it is to ensure that matters are proved beyond a reasonable doubt. How essential the rules, the rigour, the evidential strictures they're there for a reason. They're there to try and protect us from error and the awful consequence of error. I remember Edward saying to me that in these cases, these capital cases in this courtroom, there was always a considerable edge, huge burden of responsibility on all the people taking part in it, particularly when death was being pronounced as it was from where I'm standing now. So in those circumstances, that vital obligation is one that we have to take very seriously every day, whether it's the district court, circuit court, high court, or anywhere else. And in this particular case, we're confronted with circumstances where a case that was described at the outset by the local state solicitor has been far from convincing, which never really changed in shape, just kept going, kept lumbering ahead, getting over every obstacle, got to the jury, end of the case, conviction, and in the appeal, the same sense of momentum once it was built up seemed to be impossible to stop. And perhaps that's where the tragedy lies in this particular case. But in all of those circumstances, whether it's Adrian Hardyman or whether it's Edward Cummins or whether it's any one of us 
Perhaps the case also shows that if we find ourselves in circumstances where we perceive that there is an injustice about to take place, then it is our duty and our calling as barristers to, in the words, or to paraphrase the words of Harry Gleeson, to make sure that we have no hand, act, or part in it. Thank you. Shane has told me to say nothing by way of thanks, and he told me to say virtually nothing by way of introduction, so I'm going to just disregard what he said. Um, that was a, an incredible privilege to uh, listen to, uh, and I think it displayed all uh, of the sort of uh, qualities and all of the things that um, I know Shane and the rest of us would like to have got from these talks. I, I think Shane's forensic analysis of the case of the parties, of the council, of the participants, of the court, and of everything else that happened um, was absolutely remarkable. And as I say, a great privilege to have uh, been here to listen to. I think it is, Shane has done us all a great service uh, by giving us the background and the detail of that case. Um, what, what he didn't, and perhaps what he couldn't say was, as most of us I'm sure here know, was that Harry Gleeson did receive the first posthumous pardon uh, in December of last year from, from the president. So it's perhaps good to say that. Uh, hard to listen to without getting a sick feeling in the pit of your stomach for a lot of that stuff. But I think uh, something that uh, everybody who is here to listen to will not forget uh, hearing today. All I, I can do now, please, is just to thank Shane on your behalf, thank Shane's family for being here. I'm sure they were delighted to have been here to hear that. It really was a, a wonderful occasion for us all. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Shane Murphy, Senior Counsel, deliver his lecture on the trial of Harry Gleeson as part of the Green Street Lecture Series in 2016. We hope you've enjoyed it. For more of these lectures, log on to lawlibrary.ie or wherever you get your podcasts.